You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, my valued listeners. Happy Wednesday to you all. Um, before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to ask you, my fabulous listener base and fans, to help support the podcast by rating the podcast on iTunes by giving it five stars. This helps a lot with getting the podcast rise in the rankings, and it really increases its outreach. So I can help you know young, more young professionals gain a broader perspective on their career journeys, so they can be more creative. And if you leave a review with the rating on iTunes, I will also give you a shout out uh, in the next episode or maybe if not directly the next in the future episode as well. Okay, so today's interview is with a really great friend of mine, Greg Duggan. Greg is currently the vice president at Lionvest Management Corporation. And the company itself is a investment management firm and he is in the private capital group aka it's a private equity team there uh greg has what i consider to be the poster child resume for someone in private equity where he started his journey in investment banking and morgan stanley and credit Suisse, and then he went on to do private equity at the canadian giant onyx corporation and then he went on to get his mba from harvard business school before joining a line vest so it's very well decorated with all the names that anyone in finance will know. Um, I've known Greg throughout his journey and as we get deeper into his story we showcase how it honestly was anything but linear like it just looks so well planned out but the realities are that it isn't and this is part one of a two-part series where you know we, we were just having so much fun um, chatting that we decided to chat for a full three hours and uh, so we decided to split into two different parts and so in part one we dig into his career journey and the various decisions and obstacles he faced in each transition that creates the current illusion of the linear career path in private equity so without further ado here is my conversation with Greg Duggan Hi everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Uh, today on the podcast, I have Greg Duggan. Hey Greg, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, Greg is the Vice President at Alignvest Private Capital. Um, and just to start off with Greg, can you explain to the audience what Alignvest does? And just given what I know of private equity, I know a lot of people do get confused with what it actually is like. So maybe try to explain it as if you're talking to a five-year-old. Uh, I will I will do my best. I'm still trying to figure out what Alignvest does uh, as well at a, at a broader level. Um, so let me start by saying I work in the in the private capital group, and so to your point, that is uh, very much like private equity. Although we invest um, across a number of different funds, I would say we have our own balance sheet capital. Uh, we have public market vehicles known as SPACs, uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Corporations. 
um, also known as blank shell companies. And we have um, uh, traditional, you know, private equity, LPGP style investing. But let me let me step back and say at a, at a higher level, like line invest management corporation, our goal very simply is to make money for other people. Right. And what we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to invest the capital, uh, our own capital and the capital of others such that they can meet uh, whatever objectives they're trying to achieve. So, you know, if you think about uh, individuals, individuals have uh, savings objectives, whether that's lifestyle based or retirement based corporations um, and and limited partners. So those uh, institutional um, companies that give us money to manage also have, you know, similar types of obligations that, tr- that they're trying to um, uh, manage. So best, best example I can give is think of a pension plan that has very long dated liabilities uh, and has a certain amount of assets today that it needs to grow in order to meet those liabilities. They turn to uh, alternative uh, investment managers like ourselves um, uh, to deliver returns that are above and beyond what they could achieve, you know, in um, in uh, other more traditional avenues. So think, you know, stocks and bonds, for example. And so I would say that's that's the big mission of Alignvest, right? So so we we are an investment firm, um, and we do that in in a number of different number of different ways. Um, one of those ways is on the private capital side, which is where I work. Another one of those ways is um, on our public market side. So we have a, a hedge fund, kind of a true North American, you know, long short, i.e., we we invest in or sell short stocks, um, and we also have like an institutional portfolio money management business. So you could think about it as. Um, uh, an outsourced CIO function. So um, uh, I'll finish this and I'll go back and try to explain it. An outsourced CIO function for uh, pension plans and endowments and investors, kind of like those investors I was talking about previously, um, who don't have the sophistication of some of Canada's largest investors. And so, um, you know, if you think about CPPIB, so Canada Pension Plan, or Ontario Teachers, um, or uh, OMERS, they are all very sophisticated investors. There are a lot of, you know, smaller endowments and smaller pensions that don't have those capabilities, but still need to meet those obligations um, that they all have. And so, one portion of Alignvest is is focused on providing services to that that segment of the market. Gotcha. All right, and so the private capital side is mainly just private, like bread and butter, private equity. Uh, is that where the SPAC also gets involved? Yeah, so so it's not bread and butter private equity. Mm-hmm. I think I think um, very traditional private equity is you know you go and and buy a business, um, you underwrite uh, your case, and you hold it for you know five, ten years, uh, typically. Um, and you try to create value through uh, a couple of levers, right? It's either uh, operational value, um, uh, which is the trend today, because uh, the other component, which is uh, financial value, um, uh, is commonplace, right? And so essentially, you know, you, if you think about how you make money in private equity, uh, you can either uh, grow the business, um, and I'll use, you know, 
kind of operating operating profit as that metric. You can either grow operating profit, um, you can uh, leverage the business so that you minimize how much you have to invest uh, and pay down debt over time, um, uh, or you can just take cash out of the business. Like those are kind of the three big buckets, you know, that from where you can you can generate a return. And so, so I would say we we do that. Uh, but the SPAC is different. The SPAC is um, where you would raise money up front. Um, in our case, uh, we have kind of a hybrid structure where we have kind of this committed capital up front, um, so traditional true private equity-like, as well as public market investors' capital. So you're tapping a different capital base than for traditional private equity. And the goal is to um, find an investment, uh, so very much a similar sourcing and diligence and execution process um, as you would through traditional private equity, but when you actually consummate the transaction, the company is public. Uh, it isn't private. Mm -hmm. and, and that's an interesting distinction because I, I, I would say um, uh, one of the things that you can do in a private context is you can have you know, a challenged business and actually turn it around um, and, and you know, bring it back to market uh, after your five to ten year hold period, and that's okay because nobody is seeing, you know, how the sausage is made and how operating profit is plummeting over time uh, as you're making these, you know, big changes within organizations. Unfortunately, I think in the public markets, it's much harder to do that, and so the type of business we look for as a result is is slightly different. Mm, yeah, I think when when I was first learning about SPACs, it was, it was a foreign concept because I think it's not widely known and taught and so I first, I first noticed was a, a ticker symbol affiliated with the actual fund and so yeah. I my initial thought was does this mean I can invest in a private equity fund yeah as a public investor mm -hmm. and so so that is true so I think I think for the most part we uh, we target institutional investors out of the gate um, and our investor base, you know, is focused on, uh, you know, the manual lifes and the GMOs and the and the large, long-term institutional investors of the world. Um, and uh, but because it is publicly traded, I would say uh, individual investors can invest. Um, obviously, uh, obviously, the stock right now is not very liquid. And so it's, it's tough to build a big position. But if you think about just putting in $10 and buying a single share at this point of AQY, you, you could do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, that it replicates what private equity is, which is highly illiquid when you're first going into a fund anyways. That is true. Yeah. So it, it might actually help some investors stay away from moving too much. Right. Uh, <laughs> especially, especially before we've found a deal. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, obviously, this is not some investing advice podcast. So listeners just trust your own judgment. This is just, you know, conversation. Um, I was actually thinking back in terms of how did I first meet Greg and how, how long have we known each other? And so we first met at a gym, Adelaide Club, and I realized I was five years ago. That's right. Yeah, about five years ago when I was actually on my co-op placements. And so we've had a relatively long relationship. And I think the big learning for me um, out of that is just people always say oh you got to go to a golf course to meet cool people or business people and man I've I've made all my business and networking connections that at the gym so I it's think, just because the gym is right downtown yeah and, <laughs> and I think that but I think that's a new place to go you just got to go to a nice high-end gym and you meet like pretty cool people um, 
And so throughout that time, you know, I've seen your career evolve. And I think when I first met you, um, you were either just leaving your investment banking job or you were still at the tail end of it. Um, and so, you know, if I were to pull out your career, you start out in Queens mm -hmm. and then you had a couple finance internships at KPMG, Morgan Stanley, and then you went to Credit Suisse, investment banking, then you went to Onyx for private equity, then you went to Harvard Business School, and now you're at Alignvest. So mm -hmm. kind of the, uh, you know, I would say it's quite the poster child resume for finance. It sounds so good when you put it that way. I know, right? <laughs> well, I think from, from the exterior looking in, looking in, it's like, wow, you've kind of hit all the, all the check marks there. Um, but take you back to kind of your earlier parts, like, you know, it's when you were younger and I know you're from the West Coast, like mm -hmm. me as well. And so from that kind of childhood, was finance like a big part of your life? Did you always want to continue to go down this path? No, it, it wasn't. Um, uh, and I'll go back to my comment, which is, you know, it sounds so good. It, it, it sounds very engineered when you look at it backwards. And actually, I would say for most people, you know, they can draw a fairly linear path throughout their careers. I mean, the reality is, as you know, and as most people who are listening know, is it is anything but linear. And you're stumbling into walls here and there and, and having to figure it out. Um, and so, no, I mean, to answer your question, uh, I had no idea, um, you know, what finance was uh, until I went to, to Queens and it wasn't until you know my second year where I actually took a finance course and started to understand some of the concepts um, if I think back to my time growing up in Vancouver um, you know I think the only exposure I had to anything that was business related was my my dad who was um, who was an actuary kind of uh, by training but ended up going into kind of consulting um, for uh, for Tara's parent at the time, so you know, kind of a a pension consultant um, and and an insurance consultant, um, and and you know, I think I think the only the only reason that I ended up having a chance in this industry is because he was you know very mathematically oriented, and so that kind of you know I saw that in him, and I. I obviously wanted to be a little bit like him at least. Um, and it, it pushed me to, uh, you know, like math, like numbers, um, like data. And, and I took my first economics course uh, when I was in grade uh, 11. And I think I fell in love with, you know, that piece um, of, of business analysis and, and finance. And so I think from there on, it was pretty clear that I wanted to do something in business. Um, and that it was uh, it was going to be uh, you know my my undergrad or college experience was going to be uh, more interesting if it was in a commerce program uh, than kind of a, a an applied science or mathematics program, uh, and so I went to Queens right, and I think it was from there that I figured out you know what I wanted to do and 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 kind of everything evolved from there, but even when I was at Queens right you. You mentioned it. I mean, my my first summer, I, I worked at an accounting firm, um, uh, a small one in Vancouver. My second summer, I ended up working uh, at, at KPMG in their advisory business, and it was it was a progression, right? It, it's not as though I knew from the time I was 16 that I wanted to go into investment banking. Um, I didn't know what investment banking was until you know four years later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and in you know leaving investment banking, I think 
a lot of my friends who are currently bankers, um, they are at the period where you know you've done your two years and now you decide do you want to stay on as an associate or you go into private equity or corporate development. That seems to be the common options. Um, and I think some have the misconception that if you do banking, then you're kind of guaranteed a shoe into private equity. Um, was that the case for you when you were going into Onyx? Um, how was that journey like? Well, so um, I'll try and tackle this a couple different ways. Yeah. So um, the, the obvious answer is you aren't guaranteed a spot anywhere mm-hmm. uh, at any point in life. And so, so no, I think, I think most people who go into investment banking um, who want to go into private equity will have to work really hard to, to, to make that happen. Um, and not only work really hard, but also, you know, get blessed by luck some point along their way, um, like I was, no doubt about it. Um, I will say, though, uh, you know, if you if you want to go into investing, um, uh, or if you are just broadly interested in finance, I, I think investment banking is actually a wonderful training ground. I think a lot of people have... Um, bad experiences in investment making and that's why you see the attrition rate that you do right and to your point you know whether it's um whether it's three years out or five years out you know at the different kind of early stage inflection points in your investment banking career as you're a third year analyst going on to an associate or kind of you know your second or third year associate almost going to be a, a vp um you know you ask yourself like do i want to do this for the rest of my life and i think most people don't and the reason that most people don't um is because you know you're working incredibly long hours and and you don't have much of a social life and you know uh, over time I think the tendency people may disagree with me on this one but at least I, I can only speak for myself like over time I think the tendency is you know you start to value uh, personal time more and more I think you know it's easy to just work a hundred hour work weeks when you're in your early twenties I think you know I'm in my early thirties I don't know that I'd want to be doing that now um, unless it really mattered right. Um, and so, so going back to your original question, no, uh, you're not guaranteed a spot in private equity. It is, um, uh, I, I still think it is the most logical path to take if you want to uh, go into the private equity uh, space or the investing space more broadly. So whether that's, you know, the private side or the public side, broadly speaking, the buy side. Um, uh, and if I think about how it worked for me, um, well, I, I actually, uh, again, this is going back to the theme of not being sure what I've wanted to do for the better part of my life. I didn't really know what private equity was uh, when I went into investment banking. Um, I didn't really know what private equity was, you know, kind of a month until I had to go and interview at Onyx. And in fact, I only interviewed at one spot, right? I only interviewed at Onyx and was fortunate enough for whatever reason to con somebody into giving me a job there. Um, and so, so I, I think the the reason it, it, it worked for me, and this is uh, you know going back to the luck component, is one uh, in my year Onyx hired um, a huge uh, associate class, right? So I think typically they hire four folks every year from investment banking and and they've changed their titles now so I, I don't know that what I'm saying matches up perfectly with what's on their website but anyways you know they would hire four folks from investment banking a year in my year they hired nine 
so obviously, you know, probability was in my in my favor. Um, and I was also fortunate that I could I could talk about some experience that I had in banking that was actually relevant, right? So actual uh, deal experience where you had to analyze something or form an opinion on something and, and you know take active leading roles. Um, and and you know I think one of the one of the pitfalls I see a lot of people in banking do is you know they are working these hundred hour work weeks and it's very hard at the end of a hundred hour work week to step back and think what did I actually do like what is the purpose of what I'm doing um, and if you do step back and think about that what it allows you to do is you know have an insightful conversation about the importance of what you're doing to somebody else who you know hasn't seen it firsthand um, and so you know the more stories you can tell um, about your experience and about the value that you've gained from your experience and what you can provide to, in this case, uh, Onyx or another private equity firm that you'd be interviewing at, um, the higher your chances of, of getting a job. And so, you know, I think I was able to do that. I think I was able to, you know, parlay my two years of, well, at the time it was a year of investment banking experience into, you know, kind of a two and a half year stint at Onyx. Mm-hmm. And I think... Uh, a lot of people when they now transition off from being an agent on the sell side, so that's investment banking, sales and trading, equity research, into finally the buy side, the when you call it the holy grail, and they always think it's greener on the other side. Um, and some have the notion that okay, you know, done done are the hundred hour work weeks and all that, and now I get to be an investor. But when when you made your transition, I remember. I noticed how you lost more weight going into Onyx, and um, you you got, I think ended up having even longer hours than you actually did in investment banking. Now I think the caveat is that for those who are not familiar, Onyx is probably one of the largest um, non pension fund private equity firms in Canada. It's a public company, but um, it definitely has a huge prestige in the private equity market in Canada. And you know, it might it might have been the context of the size of the company that resulted in you working longer hours than you did in banking. But what kind of expectations did you have uh, going into it and what was the reality? Like, how did it differ? Um, I think I went in eyes wide open. So I don't think there was a big delta between what I thought it was going to be like and what it ended up being like. Um, Look, I I, I think that's right. I think um, there are private equity firms where, uh, you know, you work as much, if not more, than how much you work in, in investment banking. Um, my time in Onyx was, you know, in, there's no doubt it was worse from a from an hours perspective and from a stress perspective than my time at CS. Um, I would say that's for both good and bad reasons, right? So good reasons why that's the case is because what you're doing feels more important. Um, and, you know, there's real, uh, real dollars at stake and, and, and um, uh, and as a result of that, there's more pressure. And so, you know, there, it's one thing to mindlessly work 100-hour weeks. It's very different when you actually, you know, are very focused uh, for those 100 hours and very concerned about what you're doing. Um, not that you're not when you're in banking, but it is a, just a different level of um, uh, of thought. Uh, and thinking, for me, is tiring. Um and so, so I think that's the, the that's the good piece, right? I think I think exposure to that is is good, especially early on in your career when you have real responsibility and have to break, you know, um, uh, you know, pass judgment. I was going to say make decisions, but it's it's more you know provide your opinion, um, 
uh, as consensus is formed within that firm. The bad side is is uh, if if the work that you're doing is driven by you know cultural norms that you don't agree with. And I'm not saying that you know Onyx was um, was a bad place to work. Uh, I do think there's a culture there of working really hard, and so um, uh, which is which is fine, uh, but that helps explain kind of you know why it was so much worse than my time in 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 banking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the flip side is I think I learned more there um, than you know in five or six years that I would have learned being at, at CS. Um, and already at CS, you're learning a lot more than you would anywhere else because you're working twice as much, right? So a year in banking is, you know, call it two years anywhere else. And so if you think about the multipliers, that means that the two and a half years I did in Onyx were like 16 years <laughs> anywhere else. <laughs> that is, I, I think that, that could be a very good uh, selling point for anyone who's highly intellectually curious and just wants to learn a ton and i i think i can definitely um, relate in terms of my my experience in like the public side of the buy buy side i i don't think i would have learned as quickly or as much um if i had stayed in consulting or accounting like obviously like i'm um, practically mirroring you in this comment in terms of you do learn a lot you learn a lot um like when i was when I first met you when I was in accounting, I was working 100-hour weeks. And so my your first uh, pitch to me was, why don't you just do banking? You're going to make three times as much and work the same amount of hours. Um, but I think, yeah, like there's there's something about just being in the buy side where it might be because we're the principal now and like your money's on the line and every decision you make actually has some huge kind of ramifications if you're wrong or right. But yeah, like the, the learning was completely insurmountable like I've never spoken to so many CEOs in my entire career before I had joined uh, Maurer out in Calgary like you know consultants talk about oh we, we get to advise CEOs and you get to be on a call with the CEO but man like I talked like 60 CEOs a week for example and you don't get that and let me ask you this question it would be interesting to get your take on it yeah, which yeah. is um, how much more reading did you do at Mar, relative to when you were in consulting, oh, wait how much more con- consuming versus the production of information? Right, like just splitting those two: the production versus consumption of information. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think to to answer that question, I would definitely say um, way more consuming. But I think even if I think about um, the the, pr- the process, if the full process of what you do as a knowledge knowledge worker is, you learn, you think, and then you execute. Um, I think in consulting, I'd say about 70% of my time is more executing. Mm-hmm. So you're building decks, building spreadsheets, and maybe you get about 20% of the time to think and 10% to learn. Um, and it's still valuable learning, but I didn't get as much time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing where you're constantly in a crunch of time. And so you're more focused on executing things. Whereas, yeah, when I was a mower, I'd say like, yeah, like, easily 40-50% of the time was on learning just reading non-stop talking to people non-stop and then another like 30% 40, 40% just thinking mm-hmm. and then the rest like 10% 20% is like executing that's just compiling all this shit you learned and thought about and then just writing it up in a concise manner mm-hmm. but yeah like thinking was a huge part you just sit there stare out into empty space think and just scribble in your notepad for hours on end 
Um, and yeah, for people like that love doing that kind of stuff, I think, yeah, it's definitely one of the more ideal kind yeah. of career spots. Um, okay, so you you did your stint at Onyx, and then you go into another poster child of um, careers, which is an MBA in Harvard Business School. Um, obviously, from a consulting background, all my friends always talk about it. Like, you can't be in a management consulting job without having talked about an MBA once in like your first three months. Mm-hmm. And so everyone talks about doing an MBA, but I think a lot of people, like I advise my friends on whether they should do an MBA or not, like based on my analysis, and most of them shouldn't really be doing an MBA, in my opinion. What was your thought process? Like, why did you want to go do an MBA? I would love to hear your analysis, okay. but I'll answer the question first. Yes, yeah. So I've got to go back to, to my time at Onyx. Um, so I, I think I mentioned at some point uh, that one of the reasons why I was able to um, get a job there, I think, was the fact that they had hired uh, a larger associate class, mm-hmm. right? And so that's great for getting a job. Um, it's always concerning when you have more competition, right? Which it is what it is. Um, and so the way that Onyx worked was, you know, you you came in for a two-year uh, associate program and uh, it wasn't guaranteed that you could stay on beyond that and so I remember you know in my in my first six months um, I think out of the out of the nine of us who were there um, I think three people not me were told hey you know you can stick around as a senior associate um, uh, and I was told hey you know we're not you're not there uh, we're not sure you should start thinking about what you can do after Onyx. And so I think when you get that news, you know, there's two reactions. One is, uh-oh, uh, I got to figure something out. And the other one is um, they're they're wrong, right? I think, I think there's this natural kind of confrontation with that. And so, so obviously what that did was it led me to go and say, okay, well, what can I do? So I thought about doing an MBA. This was the uh, initial spark. Right. And then obviously the other part of me was, well, you know, if I keep working hard, if I put my head down, if I, you know, demonstrate that I can actually think like a, a, you know, an investment professional, maybe they'll change their decision, which is, you know, something they had said they could they could do. It wasn't a definitive answer. It was simply here's where you are after six months. Um, So a good a good check in and a swift kick in the pants. Um, And and. This is a slight segue, but but there was a very big distinction. I think we've we've alluded to it, but we, we haven't hit it on the head between the way that you think um, as a as an investment professional and the way that you think as um, somebody that is uh, not an investment professional. In this case, somebody that's on the sell side, right? And and um, I will say, in hindsight, what I lacked um, was uh, a uh, thoughtfulness honestly, like true thoughtfulness in the work that I did, because I think in banking it was just get something on a page and get it out, and be the confidence to express that thoughtfulness. And so this is a long segue, but it'll tie in later on. Um, and so with that information, I did those two things, right? And I started exploring and I started putting my head down and trying to figure out what I was going to, you know, how I was going to impress these folks. Um, and uh, Ultimately, what happened was uh, when I was thinking about business school, which is what people had recommended because a lot of folks who I was working with had done an MBA, um, I was thinking of two schools, right? I think for for 
uh, folks uh, who were in, in my shoes or who who are or who are going to be in my shoes, um, there's little value uh, in doing kind of a Canadian MBA, especially if you have a Canadian undergrad degree. And I think, uh, and I can talk about why I did an MBA and the value of an MBA, but you know, there are a handful of reasons why you do that. And I think the US schools uh, and some European schools to be fair, um, uh, are really, you know, heads and shoulders above the rest. If you think about like tried and true tested MBA programs. Uh, so I, I, you know, I was looking at, at Stanford and Harvard um, principally, and uh, and at the same time was working a lot harder uh, at Onyx. And so, so what ended up happening was um, because the MBA is such a long tailed, uh, the MBA application process is is so long tailed. You know, you started a year in advance, and then you kind of you know do it along the way, and you compile everything that you need to apply, uh, and then you find out you know kind of a year later which. Um, actually coincided with an interesting turn of events at Onyx, which was, you know, when they had told six of the nine of us, uh, I think my math is right, six of the nine of us that, you know, you guys have to think about something else. I think, I think four of the six just left, um, which was an unintended, an unintended HR consequence uh, that they really didn't think through. And in fact, they left and went on to do um, fantastic things. Uh, and, and so, uh, so what that left uh, my associate class with was a, a you know a bunch of folks, um, well a reduced number of folks uh, and staffing needs uh, at, at Onyx and so I like to think it's because I was able to actually demonstrate thoughtfulness but ultimately it ended up working out right so I could have stuck around for for another year as a senior associate and then again you know you have to figure out if they want to keep you around as you know a, a, I think at the time it was a director. Um, uh, so I had that option, uh, and and at the same time though, uh, you know, because of this long-tailed process, I wanted to see it through, and I ended up getting accepted to HBS. Stanford rejected me outright, um, and and so I was faced with this uh, with this wonderful conundrum, which is you know, do I stay here, and and keep doing this investment role, um, or do I go and you know, spend two years in Cambridge. Um, Massachusetts, obviously, um, and uh, and go to HBS, and I ended up choosing going to HBS, and and my my thought process was um, I've already done uh, I've already done the buy side experience. This is the only chance I'll ever get to go to an extremely prestigious school. Um, and again, right? Like it's it's you know it's it's a blessing just to have the opportunity to do that. Um, and and so there was a and, and I can talk about the the elements of luck that went into that as well. Um, but for me, it was you know I'd like to spend some time trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I think I think I like what I'm doing now, but you know I've had a fairly um, sheltered and, and focused four-year career path so far. Maybe there's something else out there that I just don't even know exists that I can go and explore. Um, so I went I went and did an MBA for a couple of reasons. One was uh, I wanted a break. Two was it was a good program. Three was uh, I wanted to figure out what to do with my life. And four, um, which I... Uh, which I thought about at the time, but... Uh, underestimated the value of was uh, I wanted to go and meet people that uh, I didn't have a chance to meet in the Toronto finance bubble. 
Uh, and so that was really, uh, for me, what kind of spurred that decision. Um, I obviously ran, you know, the very traditional uh, finance professional cost-benefit analysis and, and quickly realized that it's, it's impossible. Uh, it's actually, the math is impossible because you don't know enough variables to solve, right? You know the cost, which is staggering, um, and you know the short-term benefits, um, which are not that high relative to what you were doing before you went to business school because, as we know, I'm doing something similar anyways, and I could have been doing what I'm doing now without going to business school, so why did you do it? Um, it's much more about the personal journey, right? And, and, um, and I'm happy to talk about this, right? I think about it as uh, uh, significant optionality um, and really an insurance policy. And so pricing those in the context of somebody's life is almost impossible. Um, uh, and so I just did it. Mm-hmm. And um, continuing on that trail of, yeah, like you had your particular four reasons about going into HBS. And I think you, those were your reasons of why you went to HBS. And like you said, um, the short-term benefits aren't that great. What was the big learning, though, when you came out of HBS. Now, when you look in hindsight, you had these four reasons, and when you came out, um, what was like the big difference you realized where, yeah, I expected this, but this just didn't pan out the way I thought it would. So I, I'm going to try and tie a piece of the story together. So I think if, if uh, when we were talking, before the break, when we were talking about you know some of the feedback that I'd gotten early on at, at, at Onyx, I had linked it to the confidence to express thought, right? And what I think... Um, HBS did that I didn't actually fully appreciate um, was provide me with confidence. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's very hard to actually express how important this is um, when you're talking to somebody because you, you, it's really very personal and you can only evaluate your, yourself, right, relative to who you were prior to going and doing this program. Um, but, but for those who don't know, right, HBS, um, HBS is based on the case method. And so the case method is, uh, you know, before every class, for every discipline, which I, I can quibble about um, whether or not it's a good idea, but, you know, even for an accounting class, for example, you have to read a case. Um, and with that case, you have to come prepared to class to discuss it. And so what you end up, um, what you end up having is, you know, a room of 90 people um, where you have to have the confidence to express opinion and thought um, uh, in front of those 90 people, uh, you individually. And so, you know, you do that for two years um, and you get very good at quickly forming a view, uh, even if it's not fully fully thought out, you can quickly form a view or an opinion and express it publicly. And that is, that for me, prior to doing this, was a very hard skill. So I think, you know, if I, if I were to say, like, that is one very defined thing that I can point to. The other one, um, you know, the other ones, broadly speaking, were um, just kind of actualizations of the things I thought uh, HBS would provide me. And so, yeah, was it a two-year break? Absolutely. Um, was it a, a well-deserved and needed break? Yes. And so... Is it great to go back to school when, or you know, for me, was it great to go back to school when I was 26 um, 
and and you know meet new people uh, from different walks of life and actually get to experience living in a new country a new city um, I loved it I loved that uh, the adventure component of it um, and you know what I think I think a lot of people will say why would you need to go do an MBA uh, especially if you've done a, a commerce undergrad degree what I would say is you know there's a lot of stuff to learn out there and I I can actually say with you know a bit of surprise I ended up taking away more from the classroom than I thought I would right I think there was some arrogance in me that said I don't you know I, I know everything there is to know about the theoretical side of finance or you know the classroom based aspects of, of accounting why would I want to go back to school like that's just not true um, you know if I went back today I'm sure that I could even after having done it I'm sure that I could still pick stuff up and so um, so what I would say is don't discount you know the academic learning component um, uh, of an MBA program and and then you know the third the third piece is meeting these people right and so you meet incredible people um, you meet you know some of my favorite folks were um, obviously the guys who had been in the military um, you know I think we in Canada don't have nearly the same um, emphasis on on the military that they do, that they do in the in the US um, and so you know my my class at HBS had a significant portion of people who had either been in the army uh, the Marines the Navy or the Air Force and they are incredible people I mean these are very bright clearly because they are they're individuals uh, who for some unknown reason to me, but very clear reason to them, you know, decided to sacrifice a significant amount of their lives um, for a cause that is higher than them. And, and so, so uh, you know, I think that interaction for me left a, a lasting mark. Um, and I loved, I loved hearing about their experiences. And, you know, when you, you know, when you think about your worst day at the office and their worst day at the office, it's, it's uh, quite humbling, actually, you know, my worst day is my computer froze and I lost my model, their worst days, you know, my tank blew up and I hit an IED. Um, and it's funny to say that, you know, when you're having a conversation, but when you actually dig into that, like it just puts things into perspective. Uh, and so I think I walked away from that experience, broadly speaking, just a much more well-rounded, balanced human being. Um, and at the end of the day, like, I think that that matters a lot. Um, and so, yes, obviously, could I have gotten the job I had when I first left HBS directly from Onyx? Probably. Um, in fact, certainly. Um, but, but I guess the, the question I can't answer is, you know, would I be as good at my job? Um, and I'm not saying I'm great at my job, but I would be, would I be as proficient at my job as I am today having not had that experience? I think the answer is no. Um, and so I think that's, uh, you know, that's why I did it. Um, and I'm happy to explore the other, like my, uh, you know, I think I talked about having this optionality or this insurance policy. You know, I'm happy to dive into that. But really, I think, you know, what I just talked about is kind of the most impactful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think that confidence factor is something my um, friends and colleagues also talked about as well, where um, for, for one individual, um, that person, like I constantly grilled them on, why do you need to do an MBA? Why do you want this MBA? Why do you want to go to the top seven MBAs? Like they call it the magic seven MBA schools and Harvard and Stanford are definitely one of the seven schools that are listed. And for that person, it was confidence. That person just did not believe that the, um, their career was 
that meaningful without um, having done this MBA. They felt like a, a fraud, and they felt that having do, doing an MBA would allow them to be confident in themselves. And so, yeah, I can definitely see how that can influence, um, that can help that person and any, any individual that lacks um, that kind of, I guess, self-acceptance go through that kind of journey although I think my so like you know I told you about how for most people I don't think the MBA is the right path and I think there there are many factors like I quiz my friends on whenever they tell me they want to do an MBA and obviously like any finance professional we go through the cost benefit stuff and you build up the model of the financials and yeah it's not it's not a um, a cheap thing to do and I think um, many people will go into severe debt to go through an MBA of that kind of nature where it's a high um, high profile school whether it's in the U- US or Europe it, it'll cost like what $250,000 all in like over a two year period US and, yeah US dollars <laughs> um, and yeah, like I asked them, okay, what are you trying to do it for? Like, what is your intent? What is your purpose? And mo- many of them are doing it to run away from something. It's like they don't like what they're doing now or, or and or they just don't know what they want to do with their lives. Mm-hmm. And so they just go do an MBA in the hopes that I'm just going to learn. T- like, it's just going to come to me. Mm-hmm. What I want to do will just come and hit me like, you know, the good graces of you know god or something and say oh this is what i'm meant to do and mm-hmm. they'll just come out of that okay and i think the realities of the mba like when i've spoken to other ind- people that go through these top mba schools is that's not really the case most people i think tend to go in with a certain kind of purpose and intent of what um the mba is for and they come out of it sometimes very pleasantly surprised and sometimes kind of more coming out of at least having earned what they expected to get and I think that's the gamble where a lot of people just try to do it with that kind of gamble in mind that I'm going to do this and I'll probably get a job in consulting or banking. But they don't even know what that is. They haven't researched ahead of time if that's what they want to do. They don't really have a thought of what they hope to even gain out of an MBA. Mm-hmm. And they just want to do it just purely for the branding. And yeah, that can be the insurance policy and the optionality that you get. But I think if you really want to get that expensive an insurance policy you could get it in other different ways I think it's more the insurance policy and the optionality is more like you said um, like you alluded to the side benefits like the cherry on top of what you actually want to get out of that kind of program like for me for example um, when I was trying to get into the buy side I always thought one, one of my options was to do an MBA to get into the buy side and I was very zeroed in on that I was like Columbia Business School they have top value investing program uh, in the States or even in North America in general. And so if I don't get into a buy side firm by the end of this year, I'm going to play with that. So it was very focused and I knew exactly what school I wanted to for that specific purpose. Mm-hmm. But I think not a lot of people have that kind of thought into why this school, why um, you want to take two years off to do X, Y, and Z. And I think like you alluded to introspection is a full-time thing you really have to take a lot of time to do it and that's what I've been doing over the past like six months and not a lot of people want to take the time off to do that they need to be kind of having one foot in something else like a school getting a degree whilst doing this introspection and so I think 
that could potentially be um, a way for them to do that. But I'm like I que- I make I question them constantly on is that the true purpose of what you're trying to do here, and I think when they can't come up with an answer to that, then we have to start asking the question of is this then the right move for you? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer here, and so one hundred percent, yeah. My my take might be slightly different, and I I I don't know if we talked about this before we started recording the podcast or if it was after, but um, you know there is, I think I think I mentioned you know I'm I'm hoping that you know inspiration strikes me and I don't have to work for it, and I you know that that is um, as it relates to just you know figuring out my life. Um, which I am obviously still in the process of figuring out, uh, and 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 I I um, I take your point, which is I, I think that's a naive way of thinking about um, how life unfolds, right? I think there is real value in being, you know, mission and and purpose driven uh, and owning you know what happens next uh, in one's life. I will say um, there is I I think in this is for me, real value in serendipity um, and in introspection uh, within, you know, a framework like an MBA program where you're amongst a whole bunch of people who are trying to figure out the same thing. Um, And there's this exchange of ideas and this exploratory process uh, that happens both uh, organically and um, and in a prescribed manner by the by the MBA program that helps you explore things um, that I would argue you wouldn't explore if you just introspected by yourself. Uh, and I can think about you know a number of things I did that I would have never thought of doing um, had I not done the program right and had that that kind of realization. Um, you know, there's a there's a great example where, over my summer in between my first and second years, I spent, um, you know, six weeks driving across uh, the continental United States, so from Detroit to Cincinnati, uh, to uh, Denver, uh, so literally right you know right through Kansas, um, I think. Uh, into Colorado, Denver, and then up to Butte, Montana, to do small business consulting for nonprofits. Um, something that I ended up, you know, enjoying a lot. Uh, and I also explored, um, you know, small business opportunities by working at a at a search fund. Right, I actually worked at a an oil recycling plant in in Coburg, Ontario. You know, I took the Via train up there every every uh, uh, every kind of third, second or third day, um, and spent some time with folks who, who had bought, bought that plant, um, and got to do these things that I would have never thought of doing, uh, from, a, from an experiential perspective, well, that I think from an experiential perspective were really additive to, to who I am. And so I take your point. I think, I think, you know, it is helpful to have a plan, um, and to, uh, and to go into these programs, you know, knowing, more or less what you'd like to get out of it. But I would say uh, it is okay to go into these programs knowing that what you want to get out of it is a period of introspection and a period of time where you can go and try and figure out what you want to do. And so I think that's the, you know, that's the bridge. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I 100% agree in that. Um, I think 
obviously it depends on each individual but i think yeah if you go into such programs with that mindset of yeah i want to take the time to learn more about me and actually go through that journey of self-realization i think it can be immensely valuable and i think the serendipity you talked about where you're in a social group and so you just don't know what you might get and i think a lot of the positives from that would be um yeah irreplicable yeah irreplicable um and i think gen the caveat obviously to the other side is some people might fall to groupthink where um i think the the thing i allude to when i challenge people like my friends is when you're in business school a lot of your friends go either do consulting finance or accounting you don't really think about why you want to do consulting finance or accounting maybe you do but usually people pick finance because you make a lot of money or people say you make a lot of money and you'll be retired by 35 and they just go gung-ho into that mm-hmm. um that was the case for me like I, when i did accounting it's no questions everyone just said you got to go into the big four you got to do accounting and you're going to be set for life and i said all right i'm not going to question any of that i'm just going to do that mm-hmm. and then you learn later on and i think yeah if you've like from your journey when you talk about it, you do learn a lot about yourself and a lot about the actual field that you're in and then when you go into an mba you can say okay i think i gotta take some time to learn more about me mm-hmm. and how life should work for me but i think some people when they go in with the different reasons they might succumb to groupthink again and i guess i try to i have a fear that many will <laughs> come to that groupthink when i see 30 percent exit to investment banking 30 percent exit to consulting you're not wrong there's a there's a uh there is a great stat and so, so I will say, you know, you, you have to, my, my recommendation is, you know, you should go into these programs with the right mindset. I think that's what you're driving at as well. Yes, yes. Uh, but there is a wonderful stat, which is um, if you look historically at where, uh, where MBA graduates have gone from a career perspective, the timing is almost the worst that you could possibly imagine. So, you know, they... Um, in in 05, 06, and 07, everybody was going into investment banking, and then everybody got fired. You know, in 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 98, 99, uh, everybody went into tech, uh, and everybody got smoked. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not predicting anything here, and I have no predicting predictive powers. But you know, there's a lot of that going on right now, where there's a mad rush to the to the valley um, and and into smaller startups. Uh, and there's a significant proportion of, of folks doing that uh, today. And, you know, I think one can question whether it's, you know, the fourth industrial revolution or arguably, you know, another another bubble. Um, and uh, and who knows, right? Who knows? But but uh, historically, timing has not been on the MBA side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I've probably, I think I might have seen the exact same yeah. um, stat that you alluded to as well. And it's, it's, part of the research that you read as an investor too into looking at how industries are shaping up um and so yeah okay so you leave hps you've had an experience at a stretch fund um and you decide to go back to private equity and like you said this was not something you predicted would mm-hmm. happen but what what was the realization for you then um coming out 
so it's funny again. I think we had this conversation on the elevator ride up. But but um, I think I think there's been a mass explosion in search funds, right? And 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 not for not for bad reason. If you if you think about the premise, uh, it's it's quite sound, right? Which is you know for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know what a search fund is, you know you you essentially you're a young hungry um, uh, individual who who has a couple of years of work experience plus an MBA, maybe maybe not. Who knows? Um, and and you you want to run something, you want to build something, but you're not. Uh, you don't think that you are somebody who's going to come up with an idea and execute on it. What you want to do is find an established idea and run it better. And so you know the search fund model is, you can go uh, find an owner of a business who is looking to exit, um, and and essentially take over, right, and inject new life into into their company and, and hopefully grow it and make a lot of money and you know be your own boss and all the wonderful things and so there has been this you know there's a class at HBS that is taught on this in fact in many other schools as well uh, there's been an explosion right in the US and in Canada starting in Europe uh, and even starting in Asia of folks who are looking to do this um, I think there's a for me I, it's not that I didn't want to do it. It just wasn't. It didn't feel like the right time. I love the idea of of owning something and building something myself. And there's no part of me that that thinks that I won't do that one day. Um, but I realized uh, pretty quickly that I had a lot to learn. Um, uh, and I think it was thanks to my summer experience, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I've evaluated businesses and I know how to underwrite a deal. It's a very other, it's, it's a completely different thing to say, you know, I feel confident in my ability to execute a whole bunch of legal agreements without spending millions on lawyers, right? Because you don't have those resources. Or I feel confident in my ability to actually be able to manage a business. Um, managing a business is hard. Uh, you know, this was an oil recycling plant that gave me my experience, but any business is hard. You know, you you have um, dealing with HR, just dealing with things like making sure that you pay people on time, you know, getting your customers, uh, you know, maintaining customer satisfaction, getting your suppliers to, you know, deliver on time and, and with quality products, actually running a plant, like that is very challenging. And what I realized was um, I'd feel much better if I could have a couple more years of experience, um, you know, kind of evaluating these components of a business. And, I, and the reality is where, where people would, you know, push back on that logic is, well, you're not actually running a business today. You are only investing. And I'll say, well, I enjoy that. I mean, if I think about the part of a search fund that I really liked, uh, it's the investing part, right? And so the concern I had was I'm actually not an operator. And if I'm going to go and, you know, the the first part of a search fund in theory should end very quickly. So the part I like should actually disappear. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, I think I would have to find somebody to do it with. And, and, you know, we've had this conversation. Um, and I think I, you know, I, I, am working on making that happen. Um, uh, and so, you know, I ended up going back into something that I very much enjoy, but, but I think having had the experience I had before going to, you know, do my MBA, um, uh, I knew what I wanted to look for, and so I was constrained. I would say by geography, and and as you know, and as you know, I presume most of these listeners are in Toronto, but maybe not. But the the Canadian finance scene um, is small, like it is. It is just small. It is small 
the, the number of seats on the buy side in Toronto are few and far between. Uh, the number of seats in finance in general uh, are few and far between. Um, and so, so I knew very precisely what I wanted to do, which was I wanted to go be a part of an organization that was growing. So I would get to see how you build a financial firm, specifically, you know, an asset management firm, um, while actually getting to make investments, uh, which is a hard combination to find. And so, you know, you have to, uh, it, it won't be perfect, right? Because there, there will never be that perfect job that comes across um, that uh, hits all of your criteria. But this was pretty darn good, right? This had long-term committed capital from, from the partnership group. So there was some semblance of stability. It wasn't just going to close up shop the next day. They were very impressive people and, and I got along well with them. Um, and and the wonderful thing about my job, which I think I, I underestimated, um, uh, but in hindsight should have been aware of is, you know, when you are working with a smaller team, um, and this is, we have a very small team, um, you get to do a lot more. And so all the things I didn't know how to do before, I think I have a, you know, after only being there for two years, have a great understanding of now. So, you know, all those legal documents or all the procedural things involved in doing a transaction, like, I had never really seen that uh, at Onyx. And the reason was there were, you know, five people on a deal team. And so if you were the youngest one on that team, you know, you wouldn't be involved in anything really, but kind of the financial model and kind of underwriting a, a business case. I think here, there's really nobody helping me out from an execution perspective. And so uh, that experience, I think, is, is um, although I didn't know I would be getting it, the fact that I am is, is really what's keeping me around, I think. Uh, and so I enjoy, I enjoy what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am to your, you know, to our earlier conversation, still trying to figure things out. Yeah, and I think, um, like you alluded to with the stretch fund, the stretch fund model for people that don't know, it's typically like two years. You get two years of runway to find a company and invest the money into it, and then after that search phase, you go one hundred percent into operating the business. And like you alluded to, if if it goes well, you want it to end faster than later um, by having found that perfect business. And I think um, that distinction you made of, yeah, like I'm not an operator, I'm an investor, I like investing. And I think that's important for people to realize. And I think this has been an evolution for me too, where when I first started getting into the investing world, so I got into the whole Buffett, Munger, fundamental value investing world, when I was finishing up university and that's what eluded to me joining Maurer. But I read the Buffett quote of, you know, to be a great investor, you want to be a great businessman and vice versa. And that's what eluded to me going into consulting, trying to learn about more businesses. And I always thought that being a great operator would make you a better investor. But I also recently um, heard an interview with Andy Ratcliffe of Wealthfront, and he's also one of the co-founders of Benchmark Capital, the venture famed venture capital firm and he talked about how like I've been a CEO of a huge billion dollar company and also this co-founder of a venture capital firm and let me tell you the skills are not really that transferable it's completely different things operating a company and investing in a company and I think that's actually more more so my thought process now where I think they are very different I think you there is career capital you can build up on and you can get some insight on 
but I think they're two very fundamentally different things. And I think being able to understand who you are, uh, am I really an op- nitty gritty operator or am I an investor? I think it's really important. Like that's something a journey that I've been going on through my own introspection and talking to like tons of different operators of startups and ask, really asking myself, do I really want to handle this nitty gritty thing? Is this really who I am? Or am I more of the person that likes to actually invest in these companies after thinking? And I think that's a very important distinction that you touched upon, I think a lot of people should consider touching upon themselves as well. Setting aside the investment bank that he took over when it was in dire straits, how many businesses has Buffett actually operated? Exactly. Right? He's he's a capital allocator. He can say that, but he hasn't done it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something people really should really consider about too. Not to mention that um, we're going off a tangent, but Berkshire Hathaway is practically a private equity company. Yeah. Yeah, like, sure, he does public equity investing, but... Let's be honest, most of his capital is all in the private side, and that's how Berkshire grew into what it is now. Correct. Um, and so you did allude to how, in hindsight, you should have known, you know, you're going into a small team and the line invest that you get all these different responsibilities. And so if we actually dug into what a private equity associate um, does, hmm. um, when I speak to my friends, when, so when you first look into the buy side, my thought was, Oh my, wow, maybe they get to talk to a lot of management. Maybe they you know, are really helping drive operational effectiveness in the company. But when I spoke to my friends, the reality was that a lot of it was very data and spreadsheet work, and a lot of modeling, very not dissimilar to what you would be doing in banking when you're an associate especially. And that's why there is a synergy of it makes sense to do banking to go into private equity because a lot of what you do will be actually very similar in terms of the modeling standpoint. Um, what, what, what was your experience like, and how would you say it differs between Landvest and um, Onyx? So my roles are different, right? And so so there will be differences as a result of that. Where, right. Where now there are associates helping me out, and before there there wasn't because I was the associate. But 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 to your point, like there's a reason why private equity firms hire out of investment banking. It's because the skills are literally directly transferable. And so yeah, as an associate, you are uh, spending a lot of time in in spreadsheets, right? Um, and you are again on the production side of that of that information. Like your job is to produce things for other people to consume. Um, and and so that's absolutely right. Like there will be a lot of time spent on modeling out a business, on figuring out how you think uh, about value. You know whether that's kind of you know fundamental or relative uh, from a from a public market perspective or a or a private market perspective. Um, and you're 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 busy doing that uh, on a on a daily basis. Um, I would st- I would say it's more thoughtful. Um, than what you were doing, going back to our prior conversation, right? More thoughtful. You can you consume. You have to consume a lot more information on your way to producing what you are doing in terms of, you know, you are reading as opposed to making um, sims or pitch books. You are reading those pitch books and reading analyst reports and reading, you know, consultant reports and digesting um, industry-wide uh, news. Um, but but at the end of the day, you know that is all going into building a financial model and coming out with a conclusion that you know is this a good or a bad investment. Um, what I would say from from my role today, I, you know, uh, I don't spend nearly as much time today, you know, in spreadsheets as I as I did before. Um, uh, I still do, but but 
not as not as much, not nearly as much. And my role today is much more around process, right? So, my role today is is you know if 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 we think there's a good investment, how do we actually make it happen? Um, you know, what diligence do we need to do uh, to to make sure that the assumptions that we are underwriting hold true? Um, you know, it's very hard to actually diligence something three years out, like the, the most of what's focused on is like, you know, next year's numbers, um, like, are those going to hold true? And does that support what you're trying to underwrite? Um, and so, you know, it's everything from our quality of earnings to the consultants that we're going to hire, to the legal due diligence that we have to do, to the tax specialists that we have to bring in, to the structuring, to the, um, to the drafting and negotiation of, of legal agreements. Because what I think, what I think people may not realize is like, yeah, you, you may think a business is worth X, but I, I, I presume in almost 99% of cases, the seller is going to think it's worth Y and Y is going to be greater than X. And so you have to figure out, like, how do we make this deal happen? What are we willing to live with? And there's a, there's a huge dance uh, from a negotiation perspective that has to take place. And so really my job today is all about that, right? Including, um, you know, how do you just actually close a deal? Um, I also do a lot more sourcing now than I did before. So sourcing is obviously kind of finding these investment opportunities. Um, I would say in a lot of cases, they come from investment bankers who act as market makers in the private space or intermediaries. But oftentimes it's from relationships and, and kind of your networks, which again, you know, going back to an MBA program, why that's helpful is because that's a very quick way to, to grow your network and, and you know, um, hopefully one day leverage that to actually, you know, to some monetary, from a, a monetary perspective in order to do a deal. Um, that sounds callous, but, you know, that's one of the benefits. Um, and so, so yeah, so I think, I think relative to, relative to my time at Onyx, right, today is much more about process and negotiation and structuring and kind of the coordination of everything that has to happen from the time you think it's a good deal to the time you actually own a business. Um, yeah. Hmm. And so if we, if we were to take kind of like a day in the life of what it's like in your shoes, if we, if I picked an arbitrary day, so let's say last Thursday, what was your, uh, can you go through like what your schedule was like without obviously going, revealing any of the sensitive material? The days are a blur, so I'm not actually sure what I did on Thursday. Okay. Let me, let me think about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so okay, so for example, there is a uh, there's a company that we're really interested in in uh, making an investment in, right? Mm. And so that day was about uh, we spoke to the chairman and the CEO, and uh, and his CFO. We as in, did you take the lead on on that with your team? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and we uh, walked through you know their business. Um, and we asked them to present to us, right? So you think about a management presentation, this was done telephonically, but that's what it was. And then we went back and started doing a whole bunch of industry research. Um, and so, you know, do we like the trends? You know, what, what does this company actually do? How would we describe it in layman's terms? Um, you know, what are its competitors doing? Just kind of the, the standard analysis, I would say. Um, uh, especially in, in a, on a, from an early stage perspective, um, I would also say you know we are looking at we are always looking at numerous deals at once, and so um, I think on Thursday I spent a good deal of time uh, thinking about another transaction, and and I'm not I'm not the first um, 
not the first is not the right word, but I'm not the lead on this deal. And so, you know, there's uh, there are investment memos that we prepare and, and the team prepared one and I was digesting it. So I, I read through kind of, you know, the 60 pages of stuff and thinking about questions that I can ask, you know, the team about. And and uh, we have our investment committee meeting uh, tomorrow. Uh, and so, you know, having to be prepared for that. So I spent some, spent some time on Thursday doing that. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of thinking. A lot of thinking, lot right? Of Going back to what yeah. we were talking about before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and so I think in the, I'd, I'd love to dig into this a little more, but I think in the interest of time, maybe we'll do a round two where I dig more into like what you do, but um, kind of closing, going to the final rounds. I know you're an avid book reader. Um, what, what's the book you're reading right now? Uh, so I'm I'm reading a book called Meditations uh, by Marcus, Marcus Aurelius. Mm. Um, uh, there's something about stoicism that appeals to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a finance book. So the, the 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 other finance book that's on my shelf is uh, Big Mistakes. Um, yes. Uh, which is you know a synthesis of you know 16 investors and kind of the worst things that they've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agree with that. I actually think you learn a lot. You know, this is not a surprise to you, but you learn a lot more from failure than you do from from successes. And so it's great to actually see that these infallible investors, you know, have made one or two missteps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a truism that nobody bats a thousand, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think what the 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 statistics like if even if you're a top investor you're only wrong six out of the ten times so right. the four times that you're wrong like that's gonna hurt yeah just being wrong four like four times out of ten like still forty percent that's it can't it's gotta hurt it does and you gotta know that that happens to everyone yes uh, it happens to everybody yeah um, and that's if you're really good most of the times if you're not that level you're probably gonna be wrong eight out of ten times correct <laughs> which is the case for most people in the market um, the meditations book is that a Gregory Hayes translation? Uh, I think it is, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the most recommended one. Um, I read it once, but I think I'll have to go through it again. It's one of those books where you just got to go through multiple times and yeah. you just learn something different. Last time we spoke, you said you were trying to read 50 books in the year. Are you close to that? No. Uh, I'm going to miss my target. Uh, I think I had to I had to ratchet it down. I think uh, I was I was shooting for three a month. Ah. Uh, and I might... I might hit that. I might cheat though, because I'm gonna just buy smaller books. <laughs> well, it, I think it evens out, right? Because you read one long one, and then it kind of evens yeah, out. That's exactly. what I tell myself. Exactly. Like, I read through two of the Tim Ferriss ones, like that are each to like 400, 500 pages. Yes, yeah, so early do, in the you year. You should do so. it by pages. Yeah, that's right. right. That's yeah. the logical yeah. way to do it. Exactly. And then uh, buy things with <laughs> really big font. <laughs> Some pictures too. I think my I've been trying to do two, two a month. And so two I'm, a month. I think I'm on track at the moment. I've I've read nineteen. Yeah. out of the 24 so far so we still have three months left so i think i'm on track so hopefully i can exceed it it's an easier goal than tw- than 50 yeah <laughs> I, I, I don't know i hope one day i'll get to 50 when i <laughs> when i have the time um and so then for you personally um what's the book that you've gifted most then from all those books you've read that i've gifted yeah oh geez that's a really good question I don't gift a lot of books. Well, maybe you should. I should. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the latest, the latest book, the latest book I gave, but this was, uh, uh, I don't think this is quite the recommendation that you're hoping for, but the latest book I gave was um, Live Younger Next Year, uh, which is a book about 
uh, healthy living, actually. Yeah. And so, as the title would suggest. Um, it's geared towards an older audience, I would say. But I did take away um, some really interesting things, actually, that have, uh, that have changed kind of the way I, I, I approach health and, and wellness and, and working out and stuff like that. So that's the latest one I gave. Mm, nice, nice. Um, and f- for you personally, like, I think you know, we're friends, but at the same time you're older than I am, and so there's kind of like a mentor-like quality whenever I talk to you, just because I feel every four or five years I go through what you went through last time we chatted. Um, for you personally, do you have mentors? You know, I, I wish I could say that I had like one very clearly defined person um, uh, that is a mentor, uh, but that actually uh, isn't true. And I don't know if that's because I don't spend enough time trying to cultivate relationships like that. Um, uh, and and, and uh, bear with me because because um, I'll get to I'll get to the point I'm trying to make. I like I, I don't think about it in the classic mentor mentee relationship, right? Like I feel as though. Um, uh, that's a little bit too much give and take in a one-way relationship. Like my mentors, uh, you know, if you think about a mentor, like the traditional one is somebody, to your point, who is older than you um, and who can provide advice. I mean, I think my mentors are actually my age. Um, I think I've I think I've kind of found a nice circle of, of people who, um, who think differently than I do and who can provide advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I go, when I have problems, whether it's, you know, career or, or personal, professional or personal rather, like I'll turn to those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it kind of breaks the mold of a traditional mentor mentee relationship. Um, uh, but it works. It works for me. Yeah, and and I think that's that's actually the most important thing. Where practically the point of it is to is to elevate you, right? It's to help you grow right. into a completely better and different person every year or even faster. Yeah, and so I think yeah, I agree. I think it doesn't have to be someone older necessarily. One of the things I, I do, um, and again, this is coming out of the MBA program, is is uh, a forum. So so. Mm. Uh, there are, you know, big organizations like YPO who who do these things. I do one through a, through a different one, and and you know, for the benefit of your listeners, like what these forums are is is you get a group of of, of people together who, um, it's better if they're not close friends, um, kind of arm's length relationships, uh, and once a month or however many times you decide per year, you get together and you can talk about you know personal and professional problems, best worst. Um, and and what it ends up doing is it ends up being like a personal board of directors, right? And I'm sure that's an overused term, um, but anybody can do this, right? Anybody who's interested, um, as long as you have kind of at least, I would say, eight people can find time to make this happen where you get together every month um, and there are tons of materials online about how to do this uh, and, you, and you have these meetings and, you know, they're four hours long and everybody gets to... You know, usually it's everybody brings up their issues and you manage them and you triage them. And then there's usually two presentations where you go in depth and everybody, there's no advice giving. Everybody listens and tries to relate to things. They relate to things that happened in their lives and provide that feedback to uh, to the person presenting. And so it's a very, I've, I've found that to be uh, very helpful. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think that's actually extremely valuable. Um, yeah, I think that's, dif- that's different, but I think that makes sense. Like having your personal board of directors in that manner like I wrote, actually recently wrote an article on how I make my own personal board of directors through podcasts and mm. I just like I told you about how I listen to podcasts where I just find one person I like and I just go gung-ho into every interview that person's made that's yeah. generally how I've been rotating my board of directors constantly 
Um, but I will explore that form of method too. I think that's actually very fascinating. Um, and the final kind of closing questions are, if your 20-year-old self were to look at you right now, your third-year Greg in Queens, what do you think the emotional reaction would be by that 20-year-old self? Surprise. Okay. Um, and I think I think uh, it it goes back to something we talked about, which is uh, priorities, right? I think I think my priorities as a twenty year old person um, uh, are very different than my priorities today. And in fact, I can remember thinking, you know, my priorities will never change as a twenty year old individual. And boy, was that naive. Uh, <laughs> and so, look, I you know, I think. Um, I think things have gone well. Things have uh, gone poorly. I mean, that is the way that life works. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think I think uh, it's been a reasonably good ride so far. Um, but again, it's that it's you know, the 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 key things I think I would be focusing on are very different today than I thought they would be ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what advice would you give to that twenty-year-old self? Like, what advice would you have wanted to gotten have gotten? hindsight yeah I mean I th- it's funny right like people always get advice like you always get advice at every point in your life and I guess the, the, the key question is like what advice would you have actually wanted to pay attention to uh, or be attuned to right because I think you dismiss advice as quickly as you get it and um, you know there's this this is going to be very cliche but there's this concept of just you know, having an open mind and being willing to explore things. And I think I had a very closed mind. Like, I think as soon as I figured out I wanted to go into finance, like, it was only that. Like, it was, there was nothing else, Um, you know, and we don't have time for it, but, you know, there are a lot of costs of having a singular focus in life, including, you know, the, um, the lack of awareness of what's happening around you. And I would say, you know, I I missed out on a lot of great things in my early 20s um, because of that. And, and so I think there's, uh, there's a real close-mindedness about me, uh, especially kind of 10 years ago, that I'd like to go back and, and change. Mm-hmm. And I want to dig into that. But um, yeah, you're right. We were kind of closing down on the time. Um, maybe we'll have a part two. I'd love that. I'd love to I'd have love, a part two, love to be back. Yeah, maybe I'll have you back next week. I don't know. <laughs> we might just make this a long two-hour series. That's right. Um, but okay, no, great, Greg. Thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our chat. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. It's been great. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I hope the audience got a lot out of it. And yeah, I, I we'll probably have a part two. I think we'll probably have a part two uh, if your schedule permits. Um, all right. Yeah. Thanks, Greg, for coming on. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.